Dateline. Intermountain Republican, July 21st, 1907. Quote, Within the four walls of the Salt Lake County Jail have been housed during its 18 years of existence some of the worst types known to the criminal world. If that old rotary could tell what it has heard from the lips of hardened criminals, what a story of crime it would reveal. The jail has stood the test of years. The old rotary has swung on its axis thousands and thousands of times, but still the prison is known as one of the most formidable in the United States. Criminals may come and criminals may go, but the rotary goes on forever. End quote. I'm Wendy. This is Demolished Salt Lake and the story of the Salt Lake County Rotary Jail. Hello and welcome to episode 24. Raise your hand if you knew that Salt Lake had a rotary jail or if you even know what a rotary jail is. It was touted as the most ingenious invention in jail design and the most secure lockup a city could have. It wasn't. It actually had a lot of issues. Let's talk about it. Salt Lake's first jail was constructed in 1855. This adobe jail was pretty primitive. There wasn't much use for a jail back then. Any matters of justice were handled by the Mormon church authorities because the population was basically church members. But with the expansion of the railroad, more and more people headed westward. This meant that Gentiles, as the Mormons called anyone who was not a member of the church, started to settle in Salt Lake. With an increase in population came an increase in crime, which in turn made the need for a proper jail. The newspapers of the time liked to attribute the increase in crime to the Gentiles, but if you've listened to any of my other episodes, you know that wasn't necessarily the case. The second jail was constructed in the Salt Lake City Hall, which was located at 200 South between 3rd and 4th West. It consisted of five cells in a damp and windowless basement. There were only straw mattresses and no ventilation. It was pretty bad. By the 1880s, the city had enough of this jail. Aside from the environmental issues, prisoners often escaped by overpowering guards or sawing through the bars. It was time for a new escape-proof prison. Hold on to that term, escape-proof. We'll get back to that. In 1887, Salt Lake Mayor Francis Armstrong and probate judge Elias A. Smith were appointed to travel east to check out the latest and greatest in jail technology. Upon their return, Armstrong stated he preferred the traditional cage-style jail, but Smith thought Salt Lakers needed a rotary jail. So what exactly is a rotary jail? To put it simply, it was a lazy Susan for prisoners. In fact, it was sometimes referred to as the lazy Susan jail or the human squirrel cage. Both are very apt descriptions. And as you'll see, it was a terrible idea. In 1881, Indianapolis architect William H. Brown and iron foundry owner Benjamin F. Ha filed a patent for a jail with revolving cells. Their application stated, quote, The object of our invention is to produce a jail or prison in which prisoners can be controlled without the necessity of personal contact between them and the jailer or guard. This arrangement makes the whole prison as convenient to the keepers as though it consists of but a single cell and as safe as if it contained but a single prisoner, end quote. The design consisted of a two-tier cylindrical cell block with a central column that served as both support 
ventilation and plumbing for the toilets and water basins in each cell. Each tier had eight wedge-shaped cells. A stationary circular cage surrounded the cells and had one door. When a guard used a hand crank, the cell block spun around past the one lone access door. Patent number 244358 was granted on July 12, 1881. The next year, the first rotary jail was constructed and opened in Crawfordsville, Indiana. Soon, Poly Jail Building Company of St. Louis, Missouri got in on the action. Poly was a major player in building jails and prisons throughout the U.S. I mentioned them in episodes six and seven as they built part of the Utah Territorial Prison in Sugar House. If you haven't listened to that episode, go listen to it. Peter J. Pauly Sr. and James J. Ligon were granted patent number 390093 for their rotary jail in September 1888. This patent was a new and improved version of Brown and Hawes' patent from 1881. Pauly built 12 out of the 18 rotary jails constructed in the U.S. between 1882 and 1889, including the Salt Lake County Jail. But we'll get to that jail in a minute. Today, only three rotary jails still stand. The Montgomery County Jail that I mentioned earlier, the Pottawatomie County Jail in Council Bluffs, Iowa, built in 1885, and the Davies County Jail in Gallatin, Missouri in 1888. All three are now museums, and Montgomery County is the only one that still rotates. The Salt Lake Herald Republican posted an article in November of 1886 stating the new Rotary Steel Jail will, quote, probably revolutionize jail buildings, end quote. It also stated, quote, it might be a wise thing for the Salt Lake County Authority to make inquiries concerning the Rotary Prison before erecting a new jail for the county, end quote. Between Armstrong and Smith's visits to other Rotary jails and all the positive press surrounding these type of jails, city authorities awarded a contract to Polly Jail in 1887 for the iron and steel work for a rotary jail to be built at 268 West, 200 South. In July of 1887, work began on the new jail. The land was acquired by the city from one Miss Weenel and located just east of the courthouse. After Miss Weenel's house was demolished and the land was cleared, Salt Lake Building and Manufacturing Company took over to complete the job. Stone for the building was quarried in Ephraim, Utah, and shipped by rail car to the city, and of course, Poly Jail Company was in charge of the iron and steel. At the time of the construction of the jail, the Salt Lake Building and Manufacturing Company factory was located at 200 West, just north of South Temple. The heads of the company were H.J. Hayward, James and John Wardrobe, H.A. Woolley, and Oliver Hodgson. If that last name sounds familiar to you, it's because Oliver Hodgson had three sons and one grandson that were all architects. There were Frederick, Paul, and Leslie. If you're a longtime listener or follower on my socials, you know that I sing the praises of Leslie and his many buildings that still stand in Ogden. And Leslie's son, Robert, was also an architect. It seemed that architecture just ran in their blood. Okay, now back to the jail. By April of 1888, the iron and steel was almost finished. Aside from the rotary cells, the jail also contained 20 stationary cells meant for women, juveniles, those convicted of misdemeanors, and the unruly. Each of these cells had a sink, toilet, and cot. The basement also had two dark cells where those that broke the rules were sent. The rotary portion consisted of 
a two-tier cylindrical cell block with a central column. Each tier had 10 pie-shaped cells with a wash basin, toilet, and two hammocks instead of a cot. A water basin at the top of the central column provided water for the cells. The column also served as ventilation and sewer drainage system. A stationary circular cage surrounded the cells. This cage had one door. A hand crank was used to rotate the entire cell block to align a particular cell with the one door. A bell rang whenever the cells were rotated to notify the prisoners that it was moving. In addition to the jail portion, the building also contained a jailer's office, sheriff's office, hospital area, and a seven-room residence for the jailer and his family. With the interior of the jail being made of iron, steel, and concrete, it was thought to be fireproof. Luckily, that was never tested because I'm pretty sure it would not be fireproof. The exterior of the building consisted of pressed brick with sandpeat stone trimmings. According to a Salt Lake Herald Republican article, the architectural style was, quote, a nondescript architecture with the appearance of a mixture of schoolhouse, chapel, and church with two full stories with a central tower, end quote. For a jail, it was quite elaborate and really beautiful. The entire cost of the building was around $50,000, which is about $1.5 to $1.6 million today. The jail was opened in July of 1888, and seven prisoners were immediately transferred from the old jail. The worst prisoners were kept in the Rotary, where it was more difficult to escape. An article in the Deseret News in March of 1902 stated, quote, Escape from its liberty-forbidden precincts is practically impossible, end quote. But in fact, it was actually quite possible. Escape started almost immediately after the jail opened. In September 1888, the Salt Lake Republican reported that Richard Jeffrey was assigned by the jailer to cut the south side lawn. The jailer went inside to assist plumbers, and when he returned back outside, Jeffrey was gone. This led to the jailer being fired. In response, the jailer wrote a rebuttal four days later in the Deseret News to tell his side of the story. He stated that Jeffrey was not really in his charge at the time of the escape. It was customary for prisoners to work on the grounds of the jail, and when he was in charge, he only let prisoners out when he could keep an eye on them. The day of the escape, he put Jeffrey back in his cell when he left for dinner. It was the sheriff who let Jeffrey back out of his cell and instructed some workmen to keep an eye on him. He returned to find Jeffrey working in the yard and instructed him to mow the lawn, then went inside the building to help a plumber. When he came back outside, he learned Jeffrey had escaped. Due to the sheriff letting Jeffrey out, the jailer claimed that Jeffrey was not in his immediate custody. Hence, he should not have shouldered all the responsibility for the escape and was wrongly terminated. Jeffrey was later captured and returned to the jail. Seven prisoners escaped in June of 1888. A jailer stepped inside the hall of the jail and prepared to lock himself in when he was overpowered by the seven men. The men ran through the door into the sheriff's office and made their way to a door leading outside. But the sheriff's wife, who was sitting at the desk in the office, stood in front of the door to block their way. So they turned around and headed in a different direction and made their way out a different door where they hopped the fence and ran to freedom. Two were caught immediately. All the men but one were confined in the Rotary Jail. The sheriff theorized that one of the men picked the lock on the door of the Rotary and let the rest of the men out. 
Then they laid in wait in an empty cell to take down the jailer. Eventually, all the escapees were returned to the jail. But my favorite escape story is John Riss, because it plays out like a jailbreak movie. In 1907, Riss was being held in the city jail on burglary charges. While there, he tried to saw his way through the bars of his cell, but was caught and taken to the rotary jail. Now, it was practice to put the most dangerous prisoners on the lower tier of the rotary jail because it was easier for the jailer to keep an eye on them. But for some reason, Riss was placed on the top tier. Three days later, out of eyesight and working rather quickly, Risk, using saws that were supposedly passed to him by a jail worker, sawed through the bars, made his way to a window, and using his clothes as a rope, lowered himself to the ground. His escape was discovered when the jailer found the broken bar on the enclosure in front of his cell. I was not able to find if Risk was ever recaptured. Now, as with any jail, there were some deaths at the Salt Lake County Rotary Jail. Some of those who died in the jail were not known in the community, and didn't give a name or didn't indicate where their relatives lived or even if they had any. Unfortunately, these individuals were buried in paupers' graves without their names ever being known. There is one death that caused quite the controversy. On December 8, 1907, John Segerstrand was found deceased in a padded cell. John, a mine worker, was found acting strangely at the American House on Commercial Street, where he was renting a room. He was taken before Judge Armstrong to determine the status of his mental health. He was ordered to the jail to be held until an examination could be done to decide if he should go to the state insane asylum in Provo. The next morning, a guard entered John's cell to find him fully clothed and laying face down on his cot. The guard figured he was sleeping and left. He later returned and discovered that John had actually passed. Dr. W.R. Calderwood and Dr. F.H. Rayleigh were summoned to examine John. Dr. Rayleigh believed that he had passed of a brain hemorrhage due to excessive drinking, but requested a post-mortem examination. This determination was based on the fact that the American House was located in a part of town known for drinking and drugs. In fact, some of the officers theorized that John had died of drugs that he had taken while at the American House. An article in the Salt Lake Tribune one day later stated, quote, By an autopsy performed on the body of John Segerstrand, the insane man who died at the county jail after being confined as an insane person the day previous, the cause of death was attributed to tubercular meningitis or consumption of the brain. The autopsy was performed by county physician W. All Calderwood at the Joseph W. Taylor's morgue, end quote. John was buried on December 12, 1907, in Plot T of the Salt Lake County Cemetery. Plot T is a pauper's grave. During its tenure, there was one execution at the jail. Charles Theed was convicted of murdering his wife in 1896 and sentenced to death. At the time, prisoners could choose their method of death, but Charles refused, so the judge decided on a hanging. Unfortunately, Charles was tapped to test a new type of gallows. Instead of being dropped through a trap door, a 430-pound weight was attached to a rope wound through a series of pulleys that jerked Charles upward. Charles did not die from a broken neck that usually happened in a traditional hanging, but instead from strangulation. And it took almost 30 minutes for him to pass. Luckily, this method of execution was never used again. 
When Brown, Ha, and Polly set out to patent and build the rotary gels, they were sure this new style would solve some of the problems gels faced. But rather, it created a whole new set of issues. One of the biggest problems was injuries and deaths from the rotation of the cells. Now remember, the rotary cells did not have a traditional sliding door. Instead, there was a stationary cage structure that surrounded the cells. This replaced the sliding door. Prisoners could put their arms and hands and feet through the bars. But what happens when the cells rotated and say a prisoner's arm is sticking through the bars? Jailers did not have the ability to see what was going on in every cell when rotating the cell block. So he could not prevent accidents from happening. And some prisoners lost limbs and others lost their lives. Luckily, this did not happen at the Salt Lake County Rotary Jail, but there were some near misses. In 1898, after enjoying his lunch, Al Shavers waited for the door to rotate in front of his cell so he could enter it. Shavers was either too slow or not paying attention and was late stepping into the cell, and this caused him to be caught between the wall of the cell block and the stationary cage. Luckily, the rotation was stopped before he was crushed and he only sustained bruising. A similar incident happened to Charles Falkenbing in 1904, but he was able to squeeze through the opening before he was trapped. As if the possibility of death or dismemberment wasn't enough, think about what would happen if there was a fire in the jail. The rotary is operated by one man turning a single crank. There was no other way for the prisoners to get out besides waiting for the door to rotate in front of their cell. If there was a fire, the jailer would have to stand there rotating the cells until every person was out. I didn't find any instances of people being hurt or dying in a rotary jail due to a fire. But it was just not practical to be able to get everyone out of the jail safely during a fire. By 1909, Salt Lake was looking to build a new county jail. The Rotary Jail had become overcrowded and outdated. A new site around 400 South and 200 East was chosen for what was touted as a, quote, fine modern structure with sanitary conditions unsurpassed in any prison, end quote. Once again, Poly Jail Building Company was tapped for the iron and steel. On July 5th, 1910, 23 years after construction first started on the Rotary Jail, all 70 prisoners were moved from the old jail to the new county jail, bringing an end to the era of the Rotary Jail. By 1927, the old jail building was considered an eyesore. An article in the Salt Lake Tribune in August of 1927 stated that the county commissioner accepted a bid from Ketchum Building to demolish the building for $105. And with that, the once state-of-the-art jail was gone forever. The 1950 Sanborn Fire Insurance map shows an empty lot at 268 West, 200 South. But today, the Royal Wood Plaza and its parking lot stand on the site of the old jail. Make sure to follow me on Instagram and Facebook at Demolish Salt Lake Podcast for cool pictures and additional content. I'm also on Twitter at DemolishedSLPod for however long that site still exists. You can also support the podcast on Patreon and get early episode releases and additional content. I'll be back soon with another cool story of one of Salt Lake's lost historic buildings. And I'll see you then. <laughs>